Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. Take a run and make a podcast. We took a run. That was great. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. So you first. I'm astonished that we took a run today, and I didn't die. You did not die. I did not die. It was way less terrible than I thought it was going to be. It wasn't so bad. And I am always in it. I I hate running, but I like having run. So I am always in it just to get through it. So and I and this morning, I mean, the best thing about North Carolina, hands down, is the weather. Like I am here for the fact that yesterday today was cold. Well, today was cold. Yesterday, I mean, it hit seventy, yes. right? Which some of y'all in North Carolina are mad about that, and I just you can move because I am. Here for 70 degree days in December. But this morning it was cold. And by cold, I mean it was like what? Like, I don't know. Cold enough for 50. It was, yeah. And in the wind, oh, the wind, the humanity was terrible. So we took a run. But we made it. It was not terrible, even while we were doing it. And then now I feel amazing. So. That was great. I'm really happy. And while we were running, I thought, you know, why didn't I want to watch Star Wars? <laughs> like, Star Wars doesn't seem that bad when you're on the run. But now... But now... I, I'm sorry, I just screamed in everyone's ears. <laughs> now I feel great, <laughs> and I don't have to watch Star Wars, so that's great. Is that really all that's astonishing you? Well, I'm also astonished um, by the death of Marcus Lamb. Um, I was just scrolling through my YouTube feed yesterday... Because um, I, I haven't been in touch with much media over the past week or so. And um, Marcus Lamb, if you don't know, he is the co-founder, president of Daystar Christian Network. I think it's the second largest religious network in the country next to CBN. Taking your word for yes, it. Yes, I think it's the second largest. Um, very wealthy televangelist. Um, and... Oh, about a couple of months ago, I was watching an event on their network, which I don't watch very often. And they were having something, it looked kind of like a telethon, and he was talking about COVID. And so I stopped turning the channels for a moment to see what he was saying. And I, here's a quote. He said, they don't even know what's in the vaccine. And he was encouraging people not to get the vaccine. And I became so angry that I just couldn't watch anymore and turn the channel. And I said, how unfortunate that there are people who are listening to this. Um, And then yesterday I saw on YouTube that he got COVID and he died. And, um, you know, I know it's a tremendous loss for his family. Uh, His wife um, was or is his co founder of Daystar, and uh, I believe they have a son and grandchildren. Um, But I'm still so angry that even in his last hours, he maintained his position. And there have been others who were anti-vaccine, who were COVID deniers even, who got COVID and were in the hospital and said, you know what, I was wrong Go get the vaccine. You don't want to go through this. Yeah. And he did not. And still on the network, they are maintaining that position. 
and I think it's 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 harmful to people. So I I'm I don't really know what to make of his death. I'm certainly not uh, rejoicing in it. I'm certainly not um, making any kind of um, theological spiritual sure. assumptions. Like I know you know the 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 heart and mind of God on this, but I was just surprised. Uh, to see his death. Well, I think two things about it. Um, One thing, my one response is I, um, so I have been vaccinated. All of my children have been vaccinated. My youngest is five. And so she just got her second shot. Um, So I really, um, you know, I was really fortunate as a college student. I studied music, but I also studied biology and really focused on immunology. So I, I feel like there's just a lot of preparation in my life to understand um, how our immune systems work and how vaccines um, prime our immune systems and just what a gift this revelation is from God. And I have um, an understanding, again, because of my background um, as to you know why these vaccines were ready so quickly and what this mRNA technology is and why it's not um, it's, it isn't, it isn't fearful to me. It, it builds upon some foundational blocks of learning that I have. So I'm, I feel really grateful for that and am a big proponent of it. Um, particularly given how much worse the outcomes are for folks who are, who have preexisting conditions when they contract COVID and how much, the kinds of pre-existing conditions we have in this country are correlated to race and um, and wealth. So so that it really is a justice system that some people mm-hmm. can get COVID and will do quite fine and others won't. And that's not random. It has a lot to do with access to healthcare that people have all along. So, so being able to increase access to vaccines is really important to me. Um, as a manifestation of the kingdom of God. And I think that it's really tragic to me the way people who um, are trying to increase access to the vaccines sometimes unintentionally put up stumbling blocks in front of people who are vaccine hesitant. Because there's a huge difference between someone like Marcus Lamb, who is going, taking his position and power and authority and saying, thus says the Lord, don't get the vaccine, and people who are unsure about how this technology works, who are living in a world where people like Marcus Lamb and others have huge platforms and are influenced, people who have not had um, a primary care physician who they trust over the years, people who have not had um, interactions with the public health system in this country that have been good, you know, people who have constantly experienced the culture at large making choices that put their individual lives at risk. And so then when leaders of institutions say, do this, it'll be good for you, and, and yeah, there are a few risks, but don't worry about them, People have real questions. Individuals have real questions about whether they can trust 
um, the public health institutions, the doctors, the nurses, the pharmacological companies, people have questions about whether this vaccine maybe is right for most people, but is it right for individually me? Is it right for me if I'm battling infertility? Is it right for me if I know someone who started having cardiac symptoms after getting the vaccine? So is it right for me if I think um, that my family is taking all these precautions against COVID and so we're not going to get COVID? And so does it make sense for me to take on any risk to protect myself from a disease that I'm not going to get because I'm doing isolating and I'm really, you know, we wear two masks and we're wearing N95 masks, right? Like these are reasonable questions for people to ask when they're making decisions about their healthcare. Sure. And it makes me, I feel like some of the anger that people have towards a Marcus Lamb gets misdirected mm. towards a neighbor who has some concerns. And then when that person tries to say, well, I have this question, often the response they get back, even from healthcare professionals is, shut up, it's fine, take the vaccine. And when someone dismisses your concerns without even listening to them, then I don't understand how that person can't understand why they're not trusted. Like if you come to me and say, Kate, I have some concerns, and I say, shut up, your concerns aren't valid, just trust me. Like you're not going to trust me right. because I'm communicating to you clearly that I don't care. I'm not listening to you. I have, before you've even told me what your concerns are, I have already decided how I'm going to respond to them, right? So I think I am a huge believer in the vaccines. And I really do think that, I mean, I, I believe 100%, as much as I believe that the sun rises in the east, I believe that they're safe. I, I believe that they're effective. And I believe that they not only protect the people who take the vaccines, but they stop the spread of the virus and so protect people who can't get the vaccine because they're immuno immunocompromised, because they are treating cancer, whatever. Like, I, I really do believe that it is for the good to take them. And I believe it is unloving to not listen when someone comes to you with real concerns. And it is unloving to listen from a posture of, I know what's best for you before you've even opened your mouth. And so what I want is for there to be deep, authentic, respectful, engaging um, with people who are trying to make a decision that is literally a life and death decision. And if somebody at this point has not taken the vaccine, then it's because they have real concerns. And it's not helpful basically just to say by your by your subtext, if not your text, you're stupid and you should have already done this. That's not helpful. Like I don't I don't make myself vulnerable to people who tell me that they think I'm stupid. I just don't do that. So um, that I, I would like um, in some ways I just think that there are people on the pro vaccine side who are almost as harmful as somebody like Marcus Lamb is. And I really grieve that. And the other thing I think in response to that is, you know, Marcus Lamb is someone who's obviously a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, and we were talking on the, on our 
on our run <laughs> this morning. You almost said walk. I know. On our run, we were talking, uh, huffing and talking um, about a word for the year. And you were asking me if I had a word for the year for the Grove. And I have really been thinking about the word repentance and how in Christian communities, we don't, we really don't talk about repentance. And when we, if we do, it's usually in the context of like, oh, that's what those people need to do. Or we, or in our communities, it's just not a concept that we live with because we think like, oh, repentance is something you do at the beginning of your Christian journey and then you never do it again, right? Or if you do have to repent, it's because something has gone terribly wrong. And so like repentance is just not a living concept in our communities. And so that's the other way that that Marcus Lamb story really strikes me is he had no muscle memory, no ability, even in the face of overwhelming evidence that he'd been wrong because repentance is not something that a real Christian does. It's something that like a pagan does or a non-believer does. But because we have this idea that repentance is a one and done thing, then when you get to a place of being deep in your Christian walk and when truth comes and tells you you've been wrong, of course your instinct is going to be to dismiss it and to say this can't be true because I can't be who I am and believe what I believe and have to repent, right? And it's because our culture in our churches is so distorted that, I mean, it doesn't, It. I think it's tragic. And I just, I mean, yeah, I really want to celebrate that there's anybody with any kind of a platform whose maturity is is healthy enough that they can say, oh, I was wrong, please get the vaccine. Like, it's amazing to me that anybody can, because every Christian leader I know is sort of functioning with this facade of righteousness and infallibility, right? And if you were to come in front of your community, I mean, even small communities like ours, like if you're, there's, you know, you, there's no space to be able to come in and say, I was wrong about something that matters, you know, and now I'm going to move, I'm going to turn around and move in a different way. Um, we don't, we don't know how to build a community that takes righteousness, like celebrates righteousness. I mean, I'm sorry, not righteousness, celebrates repentance mm -hmm. in and of itself, not just the righteousness that comes from repentance, but celebrates repentance itself as honorable and mature like we still want to pretend that we're the people who never need to repent in the world of politics if you repent they call you a flip-flopper mm -hmm. <laughs> right right and i mean right now the political world and the marketplace christianity world are so merged that it makes sense right like we ought to be the people who can lead the way in saying I was blind, but now I see. When I moved to Charlotte 20-something years ago uh, to pastor a church here, um, one of the first things I dealt with was um, an older woman in the congregation living alone, a widowed, and she came to see me because she was hurting. I mean, she was really upset, just brokenhearted, because she had been basically scammed by mm -hmm. a plumber. And I remember she said over and over, but he had a cross 
and the sign of the fish and a scripture on his truck. Oh. How how could how could he do this? Like and really could not connect the exterior of Christianity from, you know, the the scam that came behind it. Yeah. And that's what gets me about uh, networks like Daystar. There's, um, it really angers me when people use the name of Jesus in a way that harms people. Well, but the thing is, like, you're assuming that he was doing it deliberately. And I wouldn't make that assumption. Like, I would assume that up until the fact he got, until the time that he got COVID and was, like, dying, I mean, I think it's quite possible that he was not intentionally deceiving or lying to anyone, right? I mean, the devil's good at his job, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, to me, I'm not, I, I feel like we've all failed one another because we act as though if we just, you know, if, if we just believe the right things and read the right books and have the right spiritual practices, we'll never end up on that road. Instead of recognizing that, like, no, the whole witness of people and God is no matter who you are or where you are in your spiritual journey, you are prone to sin and error. Absolutely. And so, you know, to me, the, the, the thing is, you know, he had his Damascus Road moment, potentially, and kept walking towards Damascus, right? And, and that's, you know, what's sad for me is that if there were, if we had this repentance muscle, if we celebrated that as a treasure, then someone could get to that point of recognizing the enormity of the harm they had caused and face it. But like, I have a yes, lot of... I'm, I'm not angry about intent. It's the effect. Right. I mean, this is the same person who, while being a COVID denier, got a PPP loan from the government for millions of dollars. And then once he got the loan, bought a jet, family flew off to vacation saying it was a ministry leadership retreat. And only because of public pressure did he give the money back. Yeah. I mean, that's, there, there's a pattern here. Um, well, so, I mean, yeah. he's seduced, right? I mean, seduced by the and father of a, lies who says, this is what God has for you. This is what blessing looks like. And when you have a platform that large and you have, at least I know that I have a number of senior citizens who live alone and they they're looking to watch something wholesome on television and so they naturally go to these quote-unquote christian networks and they're whenever i tune into them i just see so much that i i think is garbage well i just i think that it is really it's interesting for me to think about what would we need to do intentionally? What kind of culture would we have to create to make the Christian community safe for people to repent in, right? Because I just know that we we tend to respond to sin with by despising people, by othering people, right? And I so agree. that, you know, I, I have a lot of, I guess I can just really empathize with the humanity of someone who comes to a certain point and has a revelation of, oh my goodness, not only, 
has everything I've ever believed in been a lie? But it's been blasphemy, right? Like I like, you know, you are like Saul, like, who are you? I'm the one you've been persecuting. And what kind of love there would have to be surrounding you to be able to face the enormity of that, of that, of that sin, of that fall. And I think it's just, it's hard for me to imagine given the state of the big C church really that anybody ever has the courage to repent publicly of anything because we shame and despise and other people who mess up in ways that matter. And, and that, um, but I mean, I think, I, I just think it's all of a, all of a piece that um, like, there's a great story that Philip Yancey tells in his book, what about grace? And I, I'm just remembering the outlines of it, but I think he meets a woman who was, I mean, just not was overwhelmed by addiction and had a young child and had, had been selling this very young child for sex to get drug money. And Philip Yancey meets her and is trying to, you know, is trying to speak to her, to her humanity that is beyond just the horror of her choices. And he's trying to encourage her to come and and begin again and be part of this Christian community. And she says, church, you've got to be kidding me. Why would I want to go somewhere and feel even worse about myself? Right. And I think that that's often the case that the people who most need grace and hope of Jesus are least likely to end up in our Christian communities because they already feel full of shame and loathing and they rightly discern that among us, they would only feel even worse. Right. And so, I mean, what would it look like to have a church where we had Marcus Lamb survived would have a way to have a conversation with him that didn't begin from contempt. Like, I don't know. I mean, and obviously, you know, this is a COVID thing, but I mean, the other reason we can't do repentance and we see it is the way that the church cannot deal with white supremacy. And one of the reasons we can't deal with white supremacy is we have to deny it because if we admit it and admit how complicit it is in our understanding of who God is and ourselves and our practice and our life. And we like, we can't face it because we think there's no hope for us. Like if we admit it, we will be utterly rejected. We will reject ourselves. We will be beyond, you know, beyond hope, beyond redeeming, beyond. And so, and so that's why we cling to it because we can't face the enormity of the transgression. And if we, really made Christian communities communities that celebrated repentance, then maybe we could face it, right? We could say... Yeah, reconciliation and truth. Right, we could say, like, white supremacy has formed and shaped my soul, and yet it's not the only true or real thing about me, and even, even this can be redeemed. And there's hope for me not in continuing to walk in white supremacy, but there's hope for me in being part of this community that's a whole new way. here's the hypocrisy of Christians. (laughs) Good, I'm glad you're going to boil it down to one thing. Well, we very quickly will point to someone who doesn't believe and we'll say to them, they need to hear the bad news of the judgment and wrath of God 
in order to understand how good the good news is. Mm-hmm. But we don't do that within the church. Correct. We need the bad news of white supremacy. We need the bad news of vaccine deniers. We need the bad... We want to get around somehow the pain of truth-telling. Right. It's almost as if we want to say, well, grace is good because nothing we do really matters. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. Things we do really matter. In fact, this is one of the struggles that I'm having with... uh, I'm reading Greg Boyle's new book, The Whole Language. And and he wrote Tattoos on the Heart, and he's... Mm -hmm. You know, I I really, really... priest right he's a priest and he works in LA and out of his ministry has grown this institution called homeboy industries but what I really appreciate about him is that he you know he wasn't trying to start a nonprofit, and he wasn't well actually initially he was like he came in as a young priest and was trying to personally like broker truces between the gangs and none of it worked and he really had his crying on the rock moment of like I can't do anything that matters. I'm just going to have to preach the gospel and this full surrender moment. And then out of that full surrender, just all kinds of kingdom manifestations have grown up in, in ways that are very um, noticeable to the watching culture. Like people's lives are being transformed. And his, his radical proposition is just the plain old gospel, which is, you are the Lord's beloved. Like you are the Lord's beloved right now. And and I mean to the point that he you know he 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 goes in to minister to kids in prison. He'll he'll minister to young people who have pulled the trigger and on other young people that he's buried the day before and like go to them and say like call them miho my son and mm-hmm. say like I I'd, I'd be proud if you were my son. Which is just this radical. Yes. And I totally get that with people who are down and out, people who are on the margins of society. Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about someone with millions of dollars and a huge media empire, um, I was reading some of the comments on YouTube uh, about the death of Marcus Lamb. And what stood out to me were the comments by non Christians yeah. asking questions like, how come more Christians aren't speaking out? How come, right? And that really yeah. got to me. Like, because we ask, well, well, we say, you know, more men should speak out against patriarchy and sexism. More white people should speak yeah. out against white supremacy. Well, my point of view in this story is that, yeah, more Christians need to speak out when it comes to other Christians distorting the faith in a way that's harmful to people. No, you're And, you're and to speak it right. in, 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 in love. Um, and it's, if, if Marcus Lamb were the pastor down the street, totally, that, I, I think that's, that's different. I, I would still disagree with that position, but it's... it's might, might you write him an open letter in the local paper? <laughs> It's the power and influence that he has, right? No, you're right. I mean, and scripture is clear about, you know, teachers 
you you got to beware. Like if you have if you if you put a millstone around the neck of one of these little ones, Jesus is is not. I mean, and I think that's you know that was my my point even about like this new Greg Boyle book that I'm reading, which I really crave for and long for, and I experience it as so true. So I'm not. It's it's so true, but it is a it is a. I mean, just talking about the radical tenderness of God in ways that really unlock knots in my soul, and also, you know, the the but I get is, well, what does this mean for Marcus Lamb? Like, what does it mean mm-hmm. for an incredibly wealthy and powerful person that that God holds the same tenderness to someone who's sphere of destruction is so so very very large and, and i think we can hold those things together i think i think we can we can still say that as wrong as he was as wrong as i think he was god loved and loves him he's the lord's beloved my brother in christ i have no problem saying that yeah but I can also say and should say he was as wrong as the day is long. Right. Well, and I mean, and I think it's true. Like, had Saul continued on to Damascus, the Lord would never have stopped pursuing him. And it would have mattered. I mean, it would have mattered had he continued to murder disciples instead of make them. And I think just part of that idea of being able to say, like, if you really are walking in humility. And if you know that the only reason I'm not Marcus Lamb is because I I wasn't rich enough, right? I mean, like I'm under no illusions Absolutely. that I, you know, thank and Absolutely. there's a great prayer I read somewhere of like someone is saying like, God, thank you for making me not so poor that I'd be tempted to steal and not so rich yes, that I'd be tempted to that. hoard, mm-hmm. right? Like just this idea of like this gift of kind of a small life and a you know, what in the eyes of the culture would be like a, a mediocre life is, is a real gift because you are just protected from the extremes of temptation. And so I like having this sense of Marcus Lamb is not a different kind of human than I am. Correct. He just was a human in a very different Correct. set of circumstances. And the reality is the people who will have the most influence with him are not non-believers outside the church it's other christians which is why other christians should speak it's why what is that uh republican group called the lincoln project Project, right that's why they are so important they are speaking to people within their own group they're they they will have more influence than some Someone in the Democratic Party. Well, and I mean, I think you're right. We ought to just be able to say, and I think this is one thing that's really admirable about Rick Warren, and I think this is true, is that there came a point in his life where he was like, okay, we're doing a reverse tithe. Like, now we give away 90% of everything we own, and we keep 10. And just this idea of like, yeah, there's something just really, um, there's something utterly wrong about, let's just talk about ministry leaders you know, there's just a certain level of wealth that is not compatible with the values of the kingdom of God. And I don't know what that level is, Yes. but I'm just, we need to, we need to be honest about that, that if you're buying a private jet. And there is also this, 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 this philosophy that flows through a segment of the body of Christ that says, because we believe 
a leader to be anointed by the Spirit and gifted by the Spirit, then everything they do is right. And we right. don't have, well, what you were saying earlier, we don't have space for a person to say, right here on this issue, I was wrong. Because yeah. then we do the opposite. Well, now you're entirely trash. Right. right? I just feel like. You're either completely right. Right. Or you're just trash. I just feel like we've lost the theology of Balaam's ass, mm. right? This idea that the anointing of God is so powerful that it can make a damn donkey <laughs> talk, right? So if somebody is up there and like out of their mouth can come, you know, the words of angels and like that's so like you are full. It is a straight flow, you know, of God's wisdom out of your mouth. But that does not mean you're not an ass. It yeah. does not mean that you are not a donkey. And I think, you know, Lisa Coons said this to me and it was so revolutionary to say like somebody's anointing does not at all necessarily match their maturity. Yep. So you can't assume that because someone is a, an anointed preacher, that that means that they are a mature follower of Jesus. And so you need to be able to separate these two things and know that yes, brother might be an amazing preacher and might have a revelation that is straight fire, but that doesn't mean that every aspect of his life is, is level with that other. I deal with that every time I look in the mirror. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. I mean, I, I just, I mean, it's really helpful. And so that then as a leader, sometimes, you know, like, oh, I'm the donkey. Like, Absolute, I'm the like one. Like, every Sunday, I'm like, oh, wow. I, I'll listen to, you know, a sermon going, wow, did I say that? That's totally the Holy Spirit because I know, I know myself enough to know I got issues, man. I got issues. Right. right. So mm-hmm. what's astonishing to you? Well, um, I think it might be related. So I went to, I was dropping off. Um, my youngest at kindergarten this morning and I'm glad my husband doesn't listen to this podcast because I was late like we were actually having a really lovely morning um, and I was um, I'm really have have am trying to create more space in my life for being before doing and so very irregularly very irregularly like creating some space in the mornings to like just get up and sit with the daily lectionary and just like check you so, out no don't check me out because it I, i'm telling you like it's the most there's no pattern like i just but whatever like oh, some is something right and so i'm just trying to say like i don't i'm not good at woo i know i need more woo in my life like my brain goes everywhere but i just am trusting that it's just good for me in ways that i can't understand anyway all i'm saying was this morning was actually this lovely morning like I got up and I turned the Christmas tree light on and like my my oldest had left and she's not the morning person my other two kids they're kind of morning people and they came downstairs and like Carrie brought this big huge like tree frog looking ugly thing that she cherishes I thought it was a gecko I know it's a tree frog and it has like a little torn place and she's like can you fix this and like yes darling I can fix it and I was giving her a hug and she was like no just keep cuddling me and I was reading I mean like it just was just this beautiful morning and then I realized like oh we have to leave right so and I'm very like mindful about like you know what I'm not going to speed to get to school like I want to be there on time but at the end of the day like it's just not, you know, so I'm, I'm actually like in a pretty good 
space about the whole thing. Like we're going to be a little, and like, we almost made it. Honestly, like I was the last one going through the carpool line and they had set up these cones at the end of the carpool line. And I just, I mean, like really, like I could see the teachers going in, like we had not totally missed it. So I just like drove in between the curves and stopped and parked and like in the driveway part. And like, apparently we really, like they had shifted from like welcoming kids into like, you're late you need to sign your kids in late and anyway whatever so I'm standing in line with Carrie and I'm still pretty calm like you know what we were late I'll do better tomorrow and then this one teacher from the school walked up to me and she was like ma'am why did you drive around those cones like is that your car why did you drive around those cones and I like this this wave of shame just like like washed over me like I just had this visceral reaction of like I mean why did I do it because I was late and I was trying to get my kid in before they locked the door and whatever but I mean like she just was I mean I don't know what was in her heart or mind but what I know is like she asked me this question there were other people standing around like all the parents who were there at that point like we're all stressed right and I could tell that some parents like there was a guy behind me who was really anxious like I he was trying to get to work and like she came and asked me the question it was my turn to sign the clipboard and he was like oh my gosh and I was like you know what you can go ahead and go and like but I just was you know I walked Carrie back to the car to move the car and like Carrie was really upset and then we were running back and she fell down and skinned her knee but I I like it was just a it was a mess but what I really was astonished at was how um just quickly my spirit shifted and how susceptible I was to shame and how visceral, like how humiliated I felt that this teacher had come up and asked me this question. And like the other parents were around and like, why did you go around those cones? And like, why? And I just was like, you know, and, um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just thinking, I I mean, it, it connects me to this, conversation that we're having about repentance right like Mm -hmm. like that's that's sort of the the counter force to repentance right that like in a space of shame like I mean I know I sound like a bad Brene Brown but like you know what you want to do is like be clever like what do you mean why did I do it I did it because I was trying to get my kid to school and like don't you have something better to be and you're holding up the line and you want to like defend yourself and you want to counterattack and you want to do anything but like feel this feeling of like I'm 46 years old and I feel like I just got you know I just feel humiliated and I guess I was just astonished at how little it took Mm -hmm. and how strong that visceral reaction was in me and that I actually was having a pretty centered morning so that I could just kind of notice it and be like, well, this is embarrassing and I feel humiliated, but it's okay. I'll take a deep breath. Like we can leave the line. I can go move my car. I mean, like it just, um, but like how for the guy behind me who was clearly, I mean, it seemed to me that he was probably worried he was going to lose his job if he didn't get, I mean, like there's just a lot of pressure that people are navigating all the time and people's margins are so thin and, to be able to like greet people with compassion of like, obviously we're all here at like 802. 
Right. So like we're all obviously trying, uh, you know, and there's, I mean, it was my fault that we were late. Like I, I can own that. And it's the first time we've been late all year, but also just like, you know, to, to be a community that would foster repentance would have to be a community where someone could really look at an action and say, I see how that action was destructive or harmful. I see how my choices led to that action or, you know, like I chose that action. I see how I could make different choices and choose a different path. And I want to because, you know, for my own sake and for the sake of the community and whatever, and how shame just cuts all of that off, right? Um, Because you really, you know, you just want to kind of rile up and be like, who do you think you are to talk to me like that, right? And how, if in our communities, if we're fostering a culture where we shame and humiliate people, we'll never be able to create a context where you can make a change and live differently. But, you know, one of the things I really like about Carrie's school, which is not what I experienced this morning, is, you know, normally they put a little sign out and it just says, oops, you're late. Please come into the office to sign in. And I've always really loved how, like, just how gracious that is to be like, yeah, I am late. I'm sorry. I'll do better tomorrow. As especially, opposed to, especially in a time when we're, you know, we're almost two years into this pandemic and our ability to stretch and bounce back I, I think is diminished and so everyone is already carrying a burden of stress and anxiety and even getting your kid to school on time comes with an extra burden right and I'm not mad at that teacher either I mean I don't know what kind of stuff she was dealing with sure. but what I do think about as a as a pastor and as a leader in a community is, if we're not intentional about cultivating graciousness and humility, um, then then we will what will grow the weeds that will grow will be shame and blame and humiliation. And so to be able to say, I mean, in that moment, like what I wish as a parent is that she, as a teacher, had been trained by her leader to say, "Hey, when parents come." <laughs> let's not make them feel any worse about themselves than they already do. And like, if there is a child who's consistently getting to school late, how can we talk to that family and help them identify some of the challenges and help them like partner with them to solve the problem instead of shaming them because shame feels bad and so you do kind of want to avoid it but ultimately it doesn't help you actually want to get your kid there on time it just helps you want to not feel shamed again right Correct. so you're not actually cultivating and so this is the thing like repentance is not even about like I'm not going to do that bad thing anymore repentance is really about authentically wanting to do something different like authentically seeing oh, this other choice is a better choice. And it's not just something that someone is imposing upon me. It's something that I want for myself. Like I'm reaching out for that instead of what is familiar and easy, not because I have to, but because I get to, right? Anyway. Well, it just reminds me that there are several people um, in the Dorada Church family who could come to me just about any time, any day, 
and bring a word of correction. Mm-hmm. And I could receive it because I know that it's coming out of a place of love. And they, at the end of the day, I know they care about me. And honor. And, and honor me. And, and so I can receive what they're saying. Right. And, um, you know, there, there have been times in the past in other congregations that I've served where someone might have the same criticism, but I couldn't hear it because I was... I was just engaged in a power struggle with them. When I think like if someone can come to you and say, and, and I read this phrase somewhere and I've been using it with my kids a lot, that if someone can come to you and say like, oh, the problem is the problem. You're not the problem. Correct. Like the person isn't the problem, the problem. So like it, the problem is I need you to get your kid to school on time. We need the kids to all be there at the same time. That's the problem. You're not a problem. Like you're not a problem parent. You're not a problem member of the community. I, you know, and I, I think that's, if someone can come to you and say like, hey, here's a problem, but what's not at stake is your worthiness or your value. That's not at stake. So we, so you don't need to defend that. You don't need to, cause that, cause we agree. Like you have, you have value, you have worth, you belong. I'm not quite, I'm just saying like, hey, here's this thing that is a problem. Can we work on that together? As opposed to, I was already on the fence about whether or not you were a follower of Jesus or were authentically a pastor or belonged in this community. So here's one more piece of evidence. And then all of a sudden what I've got to do is battle you about that piece of evidence because everything is at stake. Yes. And I think that is just the real, you know, the real difference. But I just was, I mean, what was astonishing me was how little it took Mm. to wash me in shame and h- how strong my protective instincts were. And honestly, like, ha- what a strong spiritual posture I was in, even in that moment, and still how much it did to me. And, and wanting to sort of sit with that and think, all right, how do, we, how do we name that as a community and really help people be aware of it and help people think about how can I be someone who's intentional about honoring people instead of intentionally or unintentionally shaming them. And your reaction might have been worse if you had not had such a centered morning, right? Sure. And so <laughs> even even your response was, I, I mean, you, you felt a certain kind of way. I'm, I, I don't yeah. want to discount that. But you could have, as as they say where I'm from, you could have acted a fool. Right. I mean, <laughs> right, right, right. And right. you did not because you had had such a, a centered morning. And you do realize like how much you just want to numb that feeling, right? Like how much you just want to be like, oh, I want to go buy myself a cup of coffee or have a drink. I'm like, you know, this is nothing. Like that that ultimately was nothing. But if you're talking about a woman who has to deal with the reality that she sold her child for money to buy drugs, mm. like what can we offer someone that would allow them to face that truth instead of numb it. I'm like, and wow. I'm just not sure. I mean, I, I know that those resources are in Christ, but I'm not sure that anyone in our local Christian communities and our cultures is saying, like, how can we cultivate the fruits of the Spirit here so intentionally that someone could face that truth in this community and feel like, there was more to their story and feel like people here would want to walk with them mm-hmm. as they wow. lived that out. Wow, that's huge. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you thinking about? What am I thinking about? <laughs> I feel like this about? is a really long podcast is what I'm thinking about. Um, well, I'll be uh, brief, uh, but I can't help but think about this whole Jesse Smollett case. <laughs> like, oh. honestly, when, when the trial started, I was, first of all, I was surprised because I, th- I thought it was over. I hadn't heard mm-hmm. about it for so long. It's like, oh, this is still a thing. And um, Well, you probably need to remind people. Okay, so Jesse Smollett, uh, Je- Jesse Smollett, an actor um, on the hit show Empire, what, about two years ago? Has it been mm-hmm. that long? Right. Um, two years ago, uh, called the police saying he'd been a, been, been a victim of a hate crime, uh, racist and homophobic uh, Because he crime. is a black gay man. He's a black gay Actor. man. Yeah. Yes, in Chicago. He, uh, the story was that he left his uh, apartment um, one night, I believe it was something like 2 a.m. in the morning, um, he was going to get something to eat, and he was attacked uh, by uh, a couple of guys saying, this is MAGA country. They put a noose around his neck, poured bleach on him, and beat him up. And so he called the police, and they began to interview him about what happened. And so the the question now is, did he make it all up and he's being accused of orchestrating the whole thing, hiring some men to um, uh, uh, play the perpetrators of this hate crime. And some black men, right? Men from Nigeria, which is bananas. Um, So it's not looking good. His story just doesn't look good. It is looking and, and, I'm struggling with how to how to talk about this because uh, from my point of view at this point with the evidence that I have it looks like he made the story up and if that's the case then people like me African Americans need to say something about that because it harms the cause of justice it harms the cause of being anti-racist if we do not. To me, this is similar to um, a false accusation of rape. We we cannot, if if it is true that he made this up, then we have to call this out. Um, Does he admit that he made it up? No. He's he's maintaining his innocence. He's saying he did not do this. He but did he not. but he definitely knew the men who attacked him, and was in relationship with them. He's just saying that he did not ask them to beat him up, but he did know them, and had hired them to like train him for a yes. movie. Yes, he but said he yeah. hired them for weight training and a diet advice um, right. because that's what they do. Um, so it's just not looking good. Um, I just feel like I, I just need to say that if, if he made this up, this is wrong because what I don't want to have happen is for people like me to remain silent and for people on the right who deny that there's any kind of racism or any kind of issue that we need to 
um, look at in this country to say, um, to use this as a way of saying, um, don't believe people right, when, they, sure. when they when sure. they um, um, talk about uh, ab abuse or or instances of, of, of racism. So it's it's complicated. It's messy. It's something I really I would rather not have to look at this and deal with this, yeah. but um, especially in light of like in my mind, January sixth is still so much more important than this. Right. But this has the potential to just undermine so much good work. Well, and I one thing that I read is that, I mean, the speculation is he had received some letters, some threatening letters through the network who produced his show and that he was unsatisfied with, like he felt like the network was not taking seriously enough their response to that and he felt like he needed more protection. And so there's speculation that one of the reasons he orchestrated this was you know, because he did feel as though he was a th threatened. And so this would then force people to take that seriously and to take the threat seriously. And I think, w I mean, my response is, A, I mean, clearly there's just a lot of unwellness there. I mean, yes. it's just a manifestation of... And at a time when hate crimes are on the rise, right? And this is not helpful. Well, and I think it's just this idea of like, the end never justifies the means, right? So you have in your head the story of there's a greater good and a greater truth that I'm serving. And so this is just the way I'm going to get that greater truth to happen. And one of the things that we have to understand as believers is the end never justifies the means, whether that is, you know, wh whatever the great examples in scripture of like, you know, calling Uriah home so that cover up the pregnancy or, you know, or saying like, look, the Romans are going to take somebody out. So let's just let this one guy better that one man die than the whole nation die. I mean, what scripture shows us again and again and again is that to our human reasoning and in our human reason, wisdom, that seems like what needs to happen, but it is not the way of the kingdom and the way of the kingdom. You don't sacrifice other people and you don't you don't do wrong expecting to accomplish right. And so I think, I mean, my personal opinion, speaking as a white woman, is I, I think a lot of people aren't talking about Jesse Smollett very much because it's just so clear how unwell he was. I mean, the whole plan is so, um, you know, flawed. And well, you don't want to, on the one hand, you don't want to believe that someone would, perpetrate this kind of crime against him. And on the other hand, you don't want to believe that someone would make up this kind of story. Sure, and it's also just hard to believe that. Is it hard to believe? It is not at all hard for me to believe that there are people in this country that would want to find him, attack him, put a noose around his neck, absolutely. and pour bleach on him. I can absolutely believe that people want yes. to do that. I mean, you just have to read comments on news articles about anti-racism. Like, that's true. Do I believe that two immigrant brothers from Nigeria who knew him and were in relationship with him were the people who want to do that? No, like that does not, I mean, I'm not God, but that doesn't seem reasonable to me. So, um, it, but it, it is, I mean, things are just not as clear. I mean, and we talk about this a lot. And like I've been to Chicago <laughs> in February 
no one goes to Subway. <laughs> At 2 a.m. Live, yeah. I, that was sort of my, my my initial thought was, this is one more example of nothing good happens after midnight, right? Like, we all just need to be home at midnight because... It's like, dude, you got Uber Eats. Right. Yeah. This is not a this is not a thing. But I, I do just think, we talk a lot about how we want to put people in white hats and black hats and divide people in categories of, like victim, oppressor, innocent, guilty. And the confounding thing is humans are much more complicated than that. And there is, I mean, I suppose there was one purely innocent victim and that was Jesus. And the rest of us are all shades of, of whatever. I mean, I, I don't, you know that I don't really like the Black and white duality in an American context is not very helpful, but um, we just we all bear the stain of sin, and um, yeah. So again, it goes back to we can do two things at the same time: we can hold him as beloved brother, and say, if you did this, if you made this up, this is wrong. This action is really destructive and wrong, yes. and um, yeah. Well, I feel like this whole podcast has just been us listing people that we <laughs> are standing in judgment of. But I, uh, the thing that I wanted to lift up and talk about that I've been thinking about is there's a um, there's a congressman from Kentucky named Massey who sent out a Christmas card, and it was his family posed in front of a Christmas tree, and they're all holding semi-automatic weapons and he tweeted it out so it was not just to his personal um family he tweeted it out to everyone with the caption santa please bring ammo and i I just think that we you know the dominant american culture has been so like there's the strong message that we tend to believe that america not just should be a Christian nation, but in real ways, the majority of Americans are Christian or that this is, you know, this nation's values were formed, you know, we are formed with Judeo-Christian values. And so I I think we don't even see the enormity of the paradox of sending out a card ostensibly to celebrate the birth of Christ. The Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace, who laid down his life, who literally said to Peter when he picked up a sword to attack the soldiers who were coming to falsely arrest, imprison, and execute Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus said, put that down. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And when people said, like, if you're really the Messiah, then why don't you, what are you doing on that cross? Like, why don't you call down God to avenge you? And Jesus said, if I wanted to, the whole heavenly host of avenging angels would be here, but that's not the way of my kingdom. Like, Jesus so explicitly deliberately again and again articulated that violence is not something that Christians do it is something that Christ absorbed and refused to pass on right so the the myth of redemptive violence the myth that we can redeem the culture or the community by doing good violence right like we can end killing by killing all the killers we can 
um, we can use violence to make peace. That is the world's, the fallen culture's truth. And, and Jesus explicitly countered that. And the whole meaning of the birth of Jesus is God did not come down riding on a holy war horse, breathing fire out of nostrils, you know, to, to wreak havoc on the earth. God did not come that way. God came as a helpless, poor, peasant baby in a manger. Like the contrast is so stark to come in weakness, not in power. And but the idea that in our Christian culture, you know, you can send out a card in the name of Christ, brandishing weapons, and people might think like, well, that's not my thing, but you do you, boo. But we don't understand like how just it it's I mean, I'm just trying to think of something that we would understand. It's like, I don't know, it's like the the Coke people running a Pepsi commercial. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's like, I, I can't even, I mean, it's just, it is complete anathema. It's like the, I mean, help me think of something that's as much of a, a, as a contrast of that. It's like the PETA people hosting a fundraising barbecue, right? Like it's just yes. completely, that's like good. that's probably the best one, right? It's like, employing a tactic that is completely counter and opposing to your stated reason for existence, it's right? It's like me joining the clan. It is. I mean, it is. And I think that that's, <laughs> like, to me, the th I mean, this country is drunk on violence. And so, like, the fact that people would want to send pictures of themselves holding weapons, like, that's not surprising to me. Like, of, of course they would. Like, we associate power with the power to do violence. So that that's as American as apple pie. That does not, it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't even shock me. It, uh, honestly, like, nothing about that shocks me. But what I do want, I mean, it's sort of circling back to our earlier conversation, I do want Christians to notice, yeah. like, this, this is such an egregious, when it's done in the name of Jesus, it is such an egregious piece of blasphemy, right? And I'm not saying that like, oh, this guy is a scum and I want to throw him away like garbage. No, I'm not even saying that. I'm just saying like that's how good the devil is. That like Christians want to protest outside of abortion clinics. And honestly, like I don't, I don't like the tactics and I don't like how they talk about people and I don't like how something that's really complicated is reduced to something that seems simple and clear. But I also, I, I, I don't think that abortion is the same as any other medical choice. And I do think that there's a real human life that's being lost. And I do think that Christians need to be people who are, understand and celebrate the sanctity of life and are doing everything they can to make sure that no life, even the life of an unborn child is ever lost, right? But I don't understand how Christians can think that that's the only pro-life issue and also, like, that dude is pro-life, like, wants yeah. to outlaw abortion in this country because the sanctity of life is so important to him, but is posing, holding a weapon designed not to defend, but to do as much damage to a human body as possible in as short a time as possible, right? So that is not a weapon of defense. That is a weapon to kill. And not just to wound, but to kill. And so I, I just, I need us to see how sick the culture is 
not so that we can go like, well, I'm so much better than him. I'm not any better than him, and I know it. But I'm just saying we don't even, we're so used to it that we can't even see it anymore. And, and, and how do we talk about it in a way that doesn't other him or, or people like him, but to say like so many of our own brothers and sisters have been seduced into thinking that Jesus works by these weapons and how do we win the hearts and minds of our own kin back to the Prince of Peace and the Kingdom of God? How would you answer that question? I don't know. We're out of time. (laughs) I mean, repentance, right? Like if I were able to say, this is where I need to repent in my life, which I mean, I feel like part of this for me is like why I talk about racism and white supremacy all the time, because it's because it's the real place of life where I need to continually look at how I've been formed by this and seek out ways that it's still shaping me and turn away from them and walk in a different way. And I want to talk about it all the time because I'm not ashamed to be a person who is trying to go after the higher righteousness of Jesus. And I want to bear witness to the fact that like, this isn't killing me. It's bringing me life. Like this is not making me feel like some worm scum who needs to apologize for her existence every day of my life. To the contrary, I feel like I'm experiencing freedom and wholeness and the goodness of life in a way that, you know, was beyond my imagination before. And so I think like this is part of about, you know, celebrating repentance creates a space where people can say, oh my gosh, I've been walking under the influence of a lie, and now I've been invited um, to worship a truth that is so much more glorious than this terrible lie that I thought was my only path to peace and safety and power and honor. So that's all. Well, it reminds me a bit of um, those early centuries of the church persecution under the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. and Christians were asked to participate in the cult of Caesar, which mean, which meant making some kind of sacrifice, and um, it, it, it was either that or death, and um, many historians tell us, um, historians tell us that many, that's the way I meant to say it, historians tell us that many Christians gave in to the empire. Mm-hmm. and said, I, I don't want to die. I will make a sacrifice to Caesar, who they right. believed to be divine. But then there were those Christians who said, I will not, and they became martyrs. When the fever of that lie of the divinity of the emperor was over, and you had all of these Christians who had bowed to Caesar, the question for the church was, will we let them come back? Will we let them repent? Yeah. And there was a huge fight over it because some theologians at the time said, no No. way, you had your opportunity, you chose Caesar, and you're forever defiled, there's no room for you. But what won the day was those voices who said, no, they they can come back, they can turn Mm -hmm. and return. 
and we we may need a I, I hope it doesn't get that dramatic in violence, but we may need some really tense period where those who are so dedicated to Christ and truth and justice, um, I can't think of any other word but martyred. And it opens the eyes of those who are currently walking in a deception. Well, and I think, you know, part of it is where does our identity come from? Does our identity come from the love and acceptance we have from God? And does our joy come from the beauty of what God is doing? Or does our identity come from not being them? And does our energy come from hating them? Because if it's the first, then it's easy to have the energy and the joy in building a bridge to saying, come and join me. But if my identity is in not being you, Mm -hmm. then I can never want you in my community. Like I want you to stay on the outside so that I know that I'm on the inside. And so the question for the church is, what is our strongest passion? Is it... Is it anger towards those we're against? Is it anger towards people who do wrong? Or is it love and joy for the things of God? Because if we're not centered on what we're for, then we can never be a community that invites people in who don't already agree with us, right? But you know, if we are about what we're for, then we can joyfully, rec- like sincerely rejoice when anyone comes in and says, oh, now you're with us. You're for this with me. I mean, it's the difference between, you know, it's why John the Baptist is the least in the kingdom of God, because when the people come out to him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, his response is, you brood of vipers who warned you, right? He was coming and he was announcing the truth, like this is the way it's going to be in the kingdom and everybody's going to have enough and people aren't going to hoard anymore and this is it and come and be baptized into this. But when those who were resisting came and said, I want to be a part of it, he was pissed, Because he believed in what he believed in, but he also believed in those people being assholes. And so he couldn't, he couldn't expand the circle wide enough for them to come in. But if we're really in the kingdom of God, then we rejoice when our enemies, you know, see light and come to know the love of Jesus. We don't feel less loved when those people get rescued by our rescuer, right? And we can authentically rejoice. Like there's, you know, no, there's no, there's more rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner who is rescued than over the 99, right? And there's, that's not, that's not our thing in the church. Like we like, we have just been so swept up in the culture war that we are fighting it for Jesus instead of saying, and we're now at trench warfare stage. I mean, God, the reality is we're not at trench warfare space, but we could be Mm. if we don't get serious about saying like, I refuse to fight you because you're my brother or my sister. Mm -hmm. Like I will let you kill me before I will take up a weapon against you. And like people are arming up and we need to not be disgusted by them or offended by them. We need to be figuring out how can we be in conversation so that we can be part of a pathway to repentance and making life with us seem like a better alternative than the life they're currently enjoying. Mm. 
Mm. We got to stop talking. What are you preaching about this week? I don't know yet. Me either. <laughs> so that was easy. <laughs> it's only Tuesday. <laughs> it's only Tuesday. Hey, thanks for listening to us, really. Um, and if you want to find out more about what is going on at Derrida Presbyterian, it's D-E-R-I-T-A pres.org. Check out our website. Check out the church's YouTube channel because you'll see whole worship services. And check out the Derrida Church podcast on the Podbean website or wherever you or wherever you get your podcasts, too. You can get it anywhere. The Derrida Church Podcast. Sure. You'll find Yolando's back catalog, and it's really, really worth a listen. And if you want to know um, what God is doing at The Grove, um, check out our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our YouTube channel. And really, like our cantata last Sunday was so beautiful. And I can good. say that it was really powerful. And I, I, it, it's all Elizabeth who finds this music. And it's so wonderful because she picks music for people on the team. Like she finds a song and is like, oh, this person will love to sing this song, which means the music is reflective of our community, which means there's a lot of music that you would think, oh, this doesn't belong in a Christmas cantata. And, and it is so powerful. So anyway, People should listen to that if you want to get in the deep, deep story of Christmas. And you can listen to um, messages on our podcast, which is the Grove Church Podcast, on iTunes or, you know, wherever. 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 Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye.